Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Baltimore, Maryland to discuss the diagnosis and management of post-intensive care syndrome in the era of COVID-19. Hi, I'm Dale Needham. I'm a professor of pulmonary and critical care medicine and of physical medicine and rehabilitation in the School of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. I'm also medical director of our Johns Hopkins Critical Care Physical Medicine Rehabilitation Program, and I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, Dale. Um, So today we'll be discussing post-intensive care syndrome, or PECS, um, as it relates to COVID-19. So maybe we could start off by uh, you defining for us what is post-intensive care syndrome and why is it so important? Sure. So to give a little trip down memory lane, it's about a decade ago that the term post-intensive care syndrome, or PICS, was created. It was originally created as part of a multidisciplinary stakeholder conference convened by the Society of Critical Care Medicine. And PICS itself was defined as, quote, new or worsening impairments in physical, cognitive, or mental health status that arise after critical illness and persist beyond hospital discharge. So some of these problems may have existed before the intensive care unit, but they've gotten worse, or some of them may be brand new. Uh, This term PICS can be applied either to the ICU survivor or to a family member. And to a family member, we would call PICS family with a hyphen between them or PICS hyphen F. So PICS was created through the Society of Critical Care Medicine in this multidisciplinary stakeholder conference. We had official representatives of the American Physical Therapy Association and Occupational Therapy Association and physiatry and speech-language pathology and uh, patients and and family members that had survived to stay in the critical care unit, uh, nurses, doctors. So we, we really created this term and, and advanced sort of an agenda for ICU survivorship through this meeting, but in particular with the term PICS, we really wanted to accomplish three things. So first of all, the primary reason was to increase awareness among a broad group of stakeholders. We wanted patients and family members, we wanted clinicians in the ICU and outside of the ICU, including primary care and physiatry and and psychiatry to understand this, as well as the general public. Second of all, we wanted to use this to help prompt outpatient screening for specific impairments occurring after critical illness, not for PICS itself, but for physical, specific physical, psychological, um, or cognitive impairments. Third, we hope that this would stimulate greater investigation or research into specific morbidities that were commonly faced after critical illness. Importantly, with this SCCM work, there was no intention to be able to diagnose PICS. We didn't intend for people to do epidemiologic investigations of PICS itself. Um, We didn't encourage or or, or try to, to have investigators design interventions for, quote, PICS itself. This isn't a term that can be diagnosed. It was created to raise awareness And importantly, what we wanted investigators and clinicians to do was to focus on specific 
issues. So a specific psychological issue such as depressive symptoms and to focus interventions or, or investigation on that rather than PICS as a, as a whole. So I hope that gives uh, important background. And this is just tremendously important in the era of COVID because we have such a large increase in our number of, of critically ill patients. So as a result, just based on that alone, we expect to see more, uh, more uh, post-intensive care syndrome issues and we're seeing more attention to this plague because of the large increase in the number of ICU survivors that we're expecting. So a clinician may be asking um, how prevalent is this condition because um, it, it may be that uh, we're seeing a whole bunch of patients after the ICU that are being uh, misdiagnosed and not being cared for. So maybe you could, I, I know you say PICS wasn't designed to be used for epidemiologic purposes, but maybe you could just give us a bit of information about how prevalent it is after uh, intensive care stay and what are the significant risk factors for developing PICS? Sure. So if we look at the list of, of potential complications that patients could have after an intensive care unit stay, things that are encompassed within PICS, perhaps 75 or 80% of survivors may have some new or worsened physical, cognitive, or mental health uh, issue after critical care. What I will talk about um, where we can be more confident in estimates are specific uh, issues. So, for example, from the physical aspect of post-intensive care syndrome, we know that perhaps more than 50% of ICU survivors will have problems with basic activities of daily living, like bathing, dressing, toileting. And we know that when it comes to instrumental activities of daily living, the prevalence of these problems may be even higher. And we've done a, a study from 13 ICUs at four hospitals in Baltimore of ARDS survivors showing that two-thirds of survivors have a new impairment in at least one instrumental activity of daily living. So an incidence was about 67% of an impairment such as ability to use the phone or shop or prepare food. We also know that six-minute walk test is one of the most commonly used performance-based measure of, of physical functioning in ICU survivors. And we know that survivors all the way out to five years after their stay have reduced six-minute walk distances compared to population norms at least. So, so that's a little bit around um, physical impairments. And in terms of what we can do to address this, I think the best quality evidence is really the use of early physical rehabilitation in the intensive care unit setting. That's where I think the evidence is strongest. You know, of course, we want rehabilitation to continue throughout the continuum of care, but we really need to think about starting early before we have um, already large losses of muscle wasting. There, there's research using ultrasound of the quadriceps muscle showing that patients can lose almost 20% of their muscle cross-sectional area within the first 10 days in the intensive care unit. So that's some information around the physical part. In terms of the mental health complications, really most of the research has looked at depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. And we know from meta-analyses done by our research group, the Outcomes After Critical Illness and Surgery, or the OASIS Research Group at Johns Hopkins, that based on meta-analysis, we demonstrated that almost one in three 
ICU survivors will have clinically important symptoms of depression. We know that about one in four survivors, based on meta-analysis, will have clinically important symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And of course, depression symptoms are prevalent symptoms. Patients may have had depressive symptoms beforehand, and therefore they're likely to have depressive symptoms after. However, post-traumatic stress disorder, most of these studies measure PTSD with respect to the ICU event itself. So this is incident events. So the incidence of post-traumatic stress disorder might be as high for critical illness as it might be for somebody that's uh, fought in the military or somebody that's been sexually assaulted. This is incredibly common. Um, and in terms of risk factors, patients that have psychiatric symptoms before the ICU are much more likely to have psychiatric symptoms and perhaps worse psychiatric symptoms after the ICU stay. But also if we have patients in the ICU or on the hospital wards before discharge home that are talking about having frightening memories or disturbing memories of being in the ICU, that should be setting off alarm bells that patients may be having long-lasting problems after the ICU. And here we need to be thinking about what can we do in the ICU? Can we reduce sedation and reduce delirium and help calm people, bring in psychologists into the ICU? Some of those things might help, as well as perhaps things like um, ICU diaries, perhaps. But the evidence there um, is, uh, in terms of randomized trials, is conflicted. But I think many people feel like there may be benefit. And then the third part of post-intensive care syndrome in terms of cognition, we know that, for example, from work published in the New England Journal of Medicine, that taking a large cohort of patients that were unlikely to have pre-existing cognitive impairment and then do standardized cognitive testing at three months and 12 months later, we know that, for example, one-year follow-up from that cohort of patients, when we look at their test scores, we know that about a quarter of them have test scores consistent with mild Alzheimer's disease. So they don't have Alzheimer's disease, but these patients' test scores are consistent with that. And presumably before the ICU, their test scores were relatively normal. So these can be very real problems with patients having problems with their memory, patients having problems with executive functions, so difficulty with planning and organizing tasks. So these really are, are some of the most common um, issues. And, and risk factors for cognitive impairment may include older age, pre-existing cognitive impairment, perhaps hypoxia in the ICU. So there are a number of, of things that we should be watching for. And importantly, one of the key parts of creating the term post-intensive care syndrome is to help people recognize that there may be coexistence of these problems. Patients may or may not simultaneously have physical, cognitive, and mental health outcomes. And our group, along with, with Sam Brown from uh, IMC in Utah, have published a nice paper that demonstrated a fairly tight um, correlation between physical problems and psychiatric problems. We did an analysis looking at, at subtypes of ARDS survivors and found that there were four different subtypes. And the most important finding was that subtypes could include mild physical along with mild uh, psychiatric uh, symptoms or moderate 
uh, physical plus moderate psychiatric, these things were really tied together quite nicely. And it demonstrated that across all of the these subtypes that we found or phenotypes, that every group had a decrement from their baseline. So, so even people that had severe outcomes, they weren't severe or that severe before the ICU. They had a decrement. And those with mild impairments likely were completely normal before the ICU based on our best estimates because a lot of these things have to be retrospectively recalled. Um, and importantly, we found that cognitive impairment didn't seem to be associated with the physical and the psychiatric. There wasn't that same tight association as we found earlier. So that's sort of an overview of each of the aspects of post-intensive care syndrome and some of the findings regarding um, how common they are and some ideas around risk factors and a little bit of information around management. Yeah, that's a really good overview um, of, of the components of PICS. So maybe you could just summarize the key guidelines or recommendations for PICS that a clinician should be employing both in the ICU and after the ICU uh, to minimize uh, the incidence or development of PICS. Yeah, so really I think in terms of guidelines, the best guidelines or the greatest evidence is really around what we do in the intensive care unit. So I think it's tremendously important that everybody that works in the ICU knows that management of post-intensive care syndrome starts with what we're doing in the ICU every single day. So what I'd like to refer people to, for example, are the Society of Critical Care Medicine's PADIS guidelines, where PADIS stands for pain, agitation, sedation, delirium, immobility, and sleep. These guidelines published in 2018 give recommendations and summarize the evidence across all five of those domains. And those five domains are together in the same set of guidelines because these things are very synergistic. What we do with pain and sedation affects delirium and immobility and sleep. So we need to be thinking about these things together. So I think those are the, the uh, most important guidelines. And those guidelines, for example, remind us that we need to be measuring, evaluating, and managing pain. We need to be doing spontaneous awakening trials um, and spontaneous breathing trials paired together. We need to be thinking about the choice of sedative agents that we use. These guidelines do uh, make a conditional recommendation that we should be doing early rehabilitation. We should be thinking about patient sleep. So these are, are the key guidelines that I'd like people to think about. And as you can see, they're very nicely interdigitated with the ICU liberation guidelines or the ABCDEF bundle. Um, these things are, are singing many of the same tunes and saying that we should be working together and think about all of these things with our daily practice in the ICU. Gotcha. So, Dale, let's turn our attention to the COVID-19 patient. So, uh, what are the unique challenges posed by COVID-19 in both diagnosing and managing patients who will uh, develop PICS? Yes, there are so many ways that COVID is posing challenges. I think that uh, the first off is just the very large number of severe ARDS patients that have hit the medical system. So there are just so many of these patients, and some healthcare systems have become very overwhelmed, making it very difficult to provide uh, the best possible care that we can when conditions are, are very suboptimal. 
Uh, many of these patients have very high severity of illness, and there's a larger number of patients with prolonged mechanical ventilation and high severity of illness. Um, deep sedation is frequently being used, uh, which I think also can pose a, a major challenge in the recovery of our patients. We have reduced interactions with clinicians due to the infectious nature of COVID and the need for PPE. I, I think PPE itself can be very frightening to patients, um, whether they're delirious or not delirious can be very frightening. I think families are very traumatized and families are a critical part of the recovery system for our patients. And also so much of the the in-ICU care and management of anxiety happens when family members are at the bedside and in many ICU settings and hospital settings, family members are not permitted to be in at the bedside. Um, and I think also not just family members, I think some healthcare systems from what I'm told, there have become barriers or challenges to having some of our regular members of the ICU team in at the bedside with the patient. That might include social workers or chaplains or physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech language pathologists, um, uh, psychologists. So, so this may also be an, uh, a, a challenge, just having our regular team members able to, to provide care. So I think there are many, many especially big challenges to help surmount uh, during COVID-19. So we're currently in the process of accumulating data, accumulating evidence for for, for best managing patients with COVID-19, and I assume it's the same is true for managing COVID-19 PECs. Um, what evidence have you seen thus far, or if it's not yet available, what evidence would you want to see in the next coming months or years uh, about COVID-19 and PECs that would change practice or advance practice? Sure. So I think that that the epidemic in the United States is too new for us to have COVID-specific data on survivorship, anything other than relatively small numbers of, of patients. But I think that we have great knowledge regarding post-intensive care syndrome, and I think much of it will be applicable to patients with PICS, in addition to some other things like, like the frightening nature, as I said, of of providers wearing PPE, the frightening nature of not having family members at the bedside, and family members that that support network um, may be more challenging when patients get home, and access to rehabilitation after the hospital stay may also be challenging. So I think that may exacerbate um, several aspects of post-intensive care syndrome, but I think that our existing knowledge of post-intensive care syndrome and of interventions will serve us very well until we have greater data. So I think the PADIS guidelines, as I said, are very important. The A to F bundle or the ICU liberation, A, B, C, D, E, F bundle, whatever you want to refer to it as, that's going to be incredibly important as well. We also need to be thinking very carefully about rehabilitation interventions for the mind and the body across the entire continuum of care. The recovery does not stop with ICU discharge, of course, and we need to be having even closer networking with our rehabilitation colleagues, with physiatrists, PT, OT, SLP, psychologists, understanding what's happening in the ICU and preparing the necessary services to be delivered in the ICU all the way through to to patients' recovery, including the, the widespread use of telehealth to help with this as well. 
I think that we need to understand how we should be supporting family members while their loved ones are critically ill and after their loved ones get home. And we have to be supporting the clinicians. This is an incredibly stressful, busy, overwhelming time for many of us. And we need to be thinking about wellness and support for each and every one of us because this is is not a sprint. We're going to be doing this hard work still in the weeks and months to come, and all of us need to to be prepared and and looking after our physical and our mental well-being in order to give back to our patients and family members. I agree. We should definitely use what existing tools we have. So, Dale, maybe we could focus on maybe one or two um, uh, points in the ABCDF uh, bundle. So, uh, you mentioned the choice of sedation, for for example, that we need to have some of these patients deeply sedated, and it it is pretty tricky. Um, You'd usually use propofol for patients, but a lot of these patients may be overweight. Uh, If you're using high doses, they have risk of elevated high uh, high triglycerides. If we use too much benzos, then that higher risk of delirium post extubation. If we use too much Presidex, that gives them too much volume of fluid, and then we have to, we're supposed to be conserving fluid so that we don't uh, um, get the, the lungs uh, too wet. What's your approach been in managing these patients, and is there a best approach or the best uh, guideline to address the, the choice of a sedative? So our approach, or the approach that I've used in caring for COVID-19 patients to date, has really been the same approach that I use for all patients with ARDS or severe ARDS. So I haven't altered my approach, but I do think that it's worth digging into a little bit. So importantly, I've had people say to me, do we need to give sedatives to self-proning patients without endotracheal tubes? Like, I think we need to step back and say, no, if this patient can lay on their belly at home uh, when they're sleeping, we don't need to give a sedative agent to somebody That's that true. doesn't have an endotracheal tube for them to self-prone. So we need to stop and think about things. Um, I think the whole critical care community uh, or many people in the critical care community are recognizing that uh, as we get more comfortable with donning PPE and managing airways and, and these things that we we are taking more conservative approaches. We're not rushing to do very early intubations. I think our approaches are relatively similar now that things have, have stabilized with when we're thinking about intubation. And we have very clear communication pathways with our airway management teams to, to be prepared uh, for these issues. And then when we do have patients with severe ARDS with severe hypoxia that are needing neuromuscular blockers or prone positioning and are having high plateau pressures and ventilator dyssynchrony. Those are scenarios where we are using deep sedation as we've used with with other ARDS patients that are in severe states before COVID. Uh, but, But we do have more of these patients in our ICU. So uh, when I was last on service, the, the number of patients that were prone position, neuromuscular block, deeply sedate, was much larger than I've ever experienced in my entire life. Um, at Johns Hopkins, all of our community hospitals as part of Johns Hopkins are send their COVID patients to uh, the Johns Hopkins hospitals. So we're seeing lots and lots of these patients. Uh, but at the same time, when patients begin to recover, we are lightening sedation in the same way that we, we have been before. We're doing sedation interruptions. We're decreasing sedation uh, as quickly and safely as feasible. We're managing delirium uh, in the best ways that we can. Our patients still are having agitation. We're still having to use similar approaches. So I'd say that 
hopefully we're not abandoning the best practices that we have, but we recognize that the number of patients needing these best practices are very high, um, and we're, we're sticking to the same um, evidence-based practices as we'd used before COVID. True. And then in terms of um, family presence, you, you captured pretty well the fact that most family members aren't able to be at the hospital, especially in the ICU in patients who have COVID-19 infection. Um, there's been an explosion in terms of technology, and a lot, a lot of uh, clinicians are now using Zoom or other um, uh, technologies. Maybe you could just comment on that and uh, its role in making sure that we alleviate pics. Sure. So I think that these are absolutely critically important. Uh, you know, at least in, in our intensive care unit, we're taking a couple of approaches or maybe three three or four approaches. So uh, we still have our social workers that are that are continuing to provide uh, support typically by phone to, to family members. We've also had some, some medical students that have been doing extra uh, outreach to, to family members as well. Uh, led by, by one of our faculty members, Alison Turnbull, and a fellow, Ian, Ian Oppenheim. Um, but we also, among the, the team that's caring for the patient at that day or that week, we're also ensuring that every single family member gets a call from one of the treating clinicians, a, a physician, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, every single day, and the family members know that we will reach out to them every single day. And then on top of that, we've been so incredibly fortunate with each of our, our hospital rooms having a, a, a tablet and having somebody on our clerical team who actually can work with family members to help them get Zoom, for example, set up um, on their, their home devices so that uh, many family members can have Zoom connection in the room with the patient. And we've had experiences where maybe 10 family members have all Zoomed in and spent an hour with a patient that's prone and paralyzed. The family members have found that tremendously valuable for them. It's a way for them to gather. It's a way for them to communicate, to see, to see their loved one, but also to continue to say the reassuring, positive things that they would say if they're at the bedside and could hold the hand of their patients. So I think that we have a multidisciplinary approach, and I think that, that lots and lots of centers are working hard and thinking about how we we would do these things and, and improvising and trying to get the infrastructure in place to make these things happen. Yes, that's uh, so very important. So I want to turn our attention slightly and not deal specifically with PICS, but uh, maybe with the physician burnout. How should we be mitigating um, uh, the risk of a physician burnout, especially given uh, the fact that our clinicians are seeing a lot of sicker patients, uh, they themselves are being traumatized by what's being experienced, and it's a lot of stress that they will be going through. It, it absolutely is, and I, I'm certainly not uh, an expert in the topic of burnout, but I do think that there are some things that uh, that we can do to help. So I think that we need to to recognize this as a very real situation. Uh, acknowledge it, try to make time to address it, try to make time as best as we can to communicate these things, to, to get some of the, these things off of our chest, to make time for something other than just work. You know, a walk outside as the weather um, is getting nicer and nicer in many parts of the United States. 
having time to, to walk outside and to just decompress, having some time to think about something that's not related to, to uh, clinical care. I think that, for example, in our, uh, we were having COVID-related faculty and fellow meetings by Zoom three times a week um, uh, in the peak of COVID. And each and every one of those um, meetings included uh, a portion of the meeting on wellness. Um, so that that was a formal part of our, our approach to COVID management. And on top of that, we're very, very fortunate that in our division of pulmonary and critical care medicine at Johns Hopkins, our division includes a number of psychologists and they've reached themselves and other colleagues within the health system. They've reached out to in order to have Zoom based um, support groups and, and wellness. We have one set up purely for our fellows. We have another one set up for faculty and fellows. And then we have another one for, for, for family members and for staff members in the pulmonary division um, that are set up as opportunities for people to, to share common experiences, uh, to, to be among peers and to have a safe place to talk about these things. Um, we're also very fortunate that uh, we have uh, a psychologist who provides clinical support in our ICU, and just moments ago, her name is Megan Hosey, I got an email from her um, regarding something that happened at the ICU and her reaching out to me and saying, what do you think we should be doing to the clinicians in the ICU to help address this, this bad news that we had in the intensive care unit? So we're very fortunate to have some of our clinicians that have skills in, in psychology areas pivot to also be thinking very clearly about our our frontline teams as well. So I think those are some of the, the approaches, at least that I'm familiar with, that we're, we're trying to undertake. So you mentioned the importance of having a team, and you're in the unique position of having really developed your team to include physicians, nurses, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, pharmacologists, um, psychologists. How did, if a clinician says, you know what, I think PICS is really important. Um, I want to develop a team that can address this problem. How would you recommend they go about uh, setting it up? Um, and obviously, this would need to be a long-term process, not something that will be done uh, overnight. Yes, absolutely. I think that that COVID may be an opportunity for some ICUs, if they have time and resources, to begin to start some of these things. And I'm going to give an example. Um, we have not done a routine post-ICU follow-up clinic as part of clinical care at our hospital. But in the era of COVID, one of our faculty members, Ann Parker, has, along with, with other people in, in the pulmonary division, has actually created a telehealth post-ICU follow-up clinic. And through that, she has reached out to our partners in psychiatry, our partners in physical medicine rehabilitation to get multidisciplinary input and support. So that's something that, that Dr. Ann Parker and others on our team have managed to create in just a matter of a few weeks. So I say that because, of course, we know these things are time-consuming and take relationships to create, but that's an example of something that got created in a very short amount of time. Um, so if we move back into the intensive care unit environment, it does require reaching out to other people in, in the health system, so reaching out to the Department of Physical Medicine Rehabilitation. In, in many hospitals, that PM&R department will have physiatrists 
you know, physicians that do physical medicine rehab, but that may also be the same department where PTs, OTs, and SLPs, and perhaps rehabilitation psychologists may be part of that. So reaching out, getting to know each other, partnering, I can tell you that the physical medicine and rehabilitation community is very keen to want to be involved and recognize that this is a really important opportunity for them to to on a large scale basis address the the very real needs um but it's always going to be a partnership nobody's going to understand critical care better than for example the doctors nurses pharmacists the people who routinely work in the intensive care unit setting and and but but we also don't understand all the concepts of rehabilitation so it really does need to be a shared partnership so for almost 15 years to give an example of that when we first started our Johns Hopkins Critical Care Physical Medicine Rehabilitation Program, every single week I would bring all those people together in the same room when we used to be able to be in a room together and talk about the rehabilitation issues in our ICU. And even now, almost 15 years later, we still have that weekly meeting. Now it's through through phone and Zoom, but we bring everybody together to talk about it, to hear different perspectives. And that same partnership that we've created in my medical intensive care unit at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, we've then taken that model and the rehabilitation team has moved that out to our six other COVID ICUs so that they could all use that kind of model. So partnership is incredibly important and reaching out to people uh, and building those bonds and, and working together on it to recognize that we're going to need provide input on um, on the stability, the physiologic issues, the PEEP and FIO2 and vasopressors and need to have a conversation about what might be safe and what might not be safe and work through it on individual patients with our, our colleagues. Um, we're also going to, we as the people working primarily in the I2, doctors and nurses, for instance, are going to have to clearly advocate for the presence and help facilitate to have these people come into our ICU. I know that some other healthcare systems for example, physical therapists have been considered non-essential workers and not being provided PPE and therefore not been able to play a role. It's going to be incredibly important that we emphasize to all of the relevant um, leaders that that's not an acceptable solution. We need to work through ways to allow these people into our ICUs, PT, OT, speech-language pathology, chaplains, psychologists, all of these people, and we need to help them. They may be much less likely have ever worked in a negative pressure area and, and are used to PPE, things that have become everyday practice for us. We need to help facilitate to make this safe and feasible for our colleagues to actually come into the ICU. We also need to recognize that sometimes telehealth can also help as well. Um, so we need to think about, okay, when can telehealth happen, uh, you know, as well to, to to provide care in the ICU during the hospital stay or after the ICU stay or after the hospital stay with our, our PM and our colleagues along with us. Definitely. So, Dale, as we uh, get towards the end of this podcast, um, you've had the opportunity to, uh, to, to read up on um, a lot about PICS. Is there anything in this podcast that we haven't covered as yet? And then are there any key messages that you want your audience to have? Sure. So we did a great job of talking about post-intensive care syndrome, but 
I think that I'd like to also touch on the consequences. How does this impact things? So two important consequences include, for example, healthcare utilization. We need to recognize that likely more than half of our COVID survivors in the ICU are going to need inpatient or outpatient rehabilitation. So we need to be prepared for this. We need to understand this. And some of these patients may need prolonged uh, access to rehabilitation services, inpatient or outpatient. And we're going to need for inpatient services to begin to work with our partners to figure out the safe way for patients who have had COVID to access those kind of cares that kind of care. So it is going to be incredibly common. These patients are going to be at high risk of having unmet medical needs, having gaps in services, having miscommunications. So we need to be quite attentive to that. And we're going to need to recognize that these people also are going to be at high risk for rehospitalization. And I say that just based on existing data. Our ICU survivors already are having gaps in care, already having high rates of rehospitalization. That could be even worse. So we need to be thinking about that quite carefully. Uh, weeks ago, the the um, president of our home health care association uh, or entity at Johns Hopkins had reached out prophylactically saying, what, what do we think we're going to need? So those kind of partnerships are are very important. I think that also, even before COVID, we have a wealth of data on delayed return to work that happens for ICU survivors. We know that, for example, that, that we've done a meta-analysis, to give you an example, that looked at 52 studies with more than 10,000 ARDS patients. This was led by Biren Kamdar, who we've worked together with for many, many years. And that showed that, for example, about one-third of ICU survivors may not have returned to work by six months. And we've got data from, from the Baltimore region showing that less than half of people have returned to work by one year. And in fact, in Baltimore, uh, we've been very lucky. We partner with the University of Maryland, the Johns Hopkins University, and the VA, where we were able to follow a cohort of ARDS survivors for five years and demonstrated that one-third of the survivors never, ever returned to work during five-year follow-up. And even among those who have returned to work, substantial proportions will return to work and actually have to stop working or return to work at a lower number of hours or in a modified capacity or to a job that, that might have less pay and, and require less skills because they have fatigue, they have physical limitations, cognitive psychological limitations. So that's a very, very big impact on society, on patients, on families. There's a lot of lost income. So those are a couple of things that I hadn't touched on, but I think really were important. And then in terms of key messages to try to synthesize things, there's a cute saying that I almost always say, and I think so incredibly important, we need to remember that the head bone is connected to the body bone. That's part of the reason we created post-intensive care syndrome. And as I alluded to earlier in the subtype or phenotype paper that we did, we demonstrated empirically that what's happening in patients' minds is, is associated with what's happening in their bodies. And the same thing applies in the ICU. There's no way that we can manage patients' mobility and rehabilitation unless we've managed their pain, sedation, agitation, and delirium. So these things are very much connected. We need multidisciplinary teams that, that 
can address all of these issues, and we as ICU clinicians need to be advocating and facilitating for the other members of our team to, to be in the ICU, whether it's resuming coming to the ICU or setting up new connections to give them access. We need to go back to the foundations of care that we know, the ADEF bundle, the PADIS guidelines, so that we're giving all of our patients the best evidence-based care, um, and we need to be protecting all of all of those that are on the front line and supporting the front line um, workers with with wellness initiatives and and recognizing that we are running much more than a sprint here and we need to to take measured approaches for that. So I think those are some key take home messages. That's a great way to end the podcast. Uh, thank you, Dale. We really appreciate your insights on this very important topic and wish you and your team all the best in the com- coming months as you care for all these patients with COVID-19. You take care. Okay, thank you so much. A big thank you to Dr. Needham and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominique Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.